welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Today's conversation is with Luigina Ciolfi. She's a full professor of human-centered computing at Sheffield Hallam University in the UK. We recorded this interview after she'd finished chairing a conference in September. And a common theme of the conversation is her passion for giving back as illustrated about that peer service, and she discusses why she does that. She also talks about her early career experience as a junior faculty where she had big responsibilities for a program and what sorts of training and support were or could have been useful for her. In giving back now to junior faculty, she also talks about her recent training experiences to take on more of a coaching and mentoring approach and has some great things to say about the value of this and some particular strategies that are useful. I also wanted to talk to her because she's been doing some research on studying how nomadic workers manage work-life balance. And there are some interesting discussions there about the ways in which there's no one strategy that suits everyone. She also reflects on her own strategies here and on the challenges of working in a different country to your families. And since we recorded this, uh, Louis has also published a guide on choosing a publication venue and it's been really well received. Lots of people have really appreciated it. So I'm, I'll add the link here. Uh, even though we haven't talked about it, so that you'll find that on the web page. Enjoy this. Louis, thank you yeah. very much for uh, talking to me. And this is a big deal because you have just said goodbye to um, all of your conference attendees at the ECSCW conference that you were just chair of. Yes. So I really appreciate it because are you shattered, exhausted? Uh, no, actually I'm quite energised. Oh, good. Yeah, and also I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's, you know, it's, wow, I'm going to be on the podcast, it's great. Well, it's so. great to have you. So how, how was it organising the conference? Um, well, I should say that I had, um, I've done it before, although not on this scale. I was helping out with the ECSCW conference in 2007. So I already got, had the sense of what type of event it was, what kind of people came, and what are the things that they like and not like about conferences. And then I've organized a couple of smaller events um, after that as chair. So again, you, you learn as you, you know, put together smaller events. So it was kind of scaling up. And I have to say, it was like, it was fun. And also it was really nice to work with some local and not so local colleagues in putting it all together. Yeah. Um, I guess the big kind of upset is the fact that we lost a very dear colleague and friend last year, Dave Martin. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as um, I was given the honor of uh, being the chair of ECSCW, I knew that I wanted him to be one of the papers chairs because mm -hmm. I had done that role with him for co-op in Nice yeah. in 2014. Yeah. And uh, I loved it. He was so thoughtful and um, it was just great. Like never um, any prejudice on anything he ever read, really thoughtfully thinking who should read this so that the person gets the best feedback they can possibly get. It was such a great experience. Um, and of course, I also knew that I could trust him. So when I was kind of, the, the early stages was to assemble a committee and think who I would like to look after different aspects of the conference. He and Charlotte Lee, who did join the committee, uh, were my first choice for uh, the kind of papers. And the fact that, so we already started doing work on this um, and then, of course, um, it was such a shock that Dave passed away. Mm. Um, so besides, I mean, the first reaction, obviously, is the, is the personal one, being a, a great friend to us all. Um, and and then, of course, mm? yeah, very young, yeah. very, very young. Yeah. Um, and with no warning, of, no, you know, is really he healthy, happy guy. 
Um, so obviously when you start recovering from the shock and then you pick up work and then you, it's like this big gaping hole where this very trusted, excellent colleague was. So that was a big setback and um, it took some coordination, some mutual support to deal with things without mm. without Dave. Mm. Um, but I think it's a mark of um, uh, what good colleagues um, mean to someone that they're willing to step up and, and help when yeah. these things happen. Yeah. So and I think it worked out well. But otherwise, besides that kind of a pretty major upset, everything else was pretty mm. straightforward and yeah, people were very helpful. So yeah, I'm quite, I was quite so happy with it. What's your motivation for doing, doing that sort of work? Because mm. it is still a big chunk of yeah. work that you have to do. So there's a, a couple of them. First of all is a personal one. Um, ECSCW is one of the first conferences that I been to as a student mm. many years ago. It was my first conference as well, actually. Right, yeah, yeah. but I think it's, it's actually, well, it wasn't my first conference. I'd been to, uh, when I was doing my um, master's by research, I'd been to a few conferences in the cognitive science, cognitive ergonomics domain, because that's where my supervisor was publishing at the time. Um, and then shortly after moving to Limerick, where I did my PhD, um, Liam Bannon, uh, who was my supervisor, suggested that I go to ECSCW in Bonn in 2001, go to the doctoral colloquium, go and meet the people. So it was maybe, I don't know, the third or fourth conference I'd been to. Uh, but I had such a great time and uh, met great people, got really nice feedback, loved the work that was being presented. And it, I kept going back. So throughout the years, um, it's always been a bit of a home for me. And in a way, I've always felt that to keep the community going and keep the good work going, it's, it's only fair that I contribute to it for others, for myself, so that I can keep going to yeah. it um, and meet colleagues and come up with good re ideas for papers and projects. So in a way, it's it's been a progression. Um, I mean, I've been involved with the community for um, many years now mm. in various roles. So when the problem came up of where to have the next conference, I thought might as well jump in and do it. Yeah. So that's... So it's a reminder yeah. that all these things don't happen just by chance. They no, take, they take, they, they take well, us to make it But happen. I'm a great and believer like in... in I'm a great believer in giving my time to build, to keep the community alive. It's good for so many things. I think it's good for me as a researcher. It's good to have a network of trusted colleagues, um, who are happy to write with you, to talk to you, give you advice. So to me, it's not just something that you do to tick that box on your CV that you organized a conference is something that it's, it's an investment of my time in, yeah. in my community, really. And it's not just something that's work. It's something that where you get something back as well from what you've just said. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So in a way, it's a little bit selfish because, I mean, I, I loved it. <laughs> I had a great time great. this week and learned great new things, heard brilliant people speak, some great mm. papers, panels. Mm. So, And I didn't even have to travel for it. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, on my doorstep, that was the best part. Yeah. 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 So you said before you said about doing Masters more in the Cognitive mm. Science area yeah. and going to Limerick for your PhD. Yeah. What was your first degree in? So um, I did my first degree in Italy where uh, when I was in university, which is uh, a couple of decades ago and a bit, uh, it was a long degree in the, in the style of what it was like in Germany and even Sweden at the time where you had your kind of undergraduate years with classes and exams, and then you had to undertake a, a research thesis. And the combined uh, thing was a master's, um, which usually takes five years or more. So I did communication studies, communication science, but um, the University of Siena, where I went, uh, they actually just launched the very first human-computer interaction 
um, curriculum there in Italy. And I always liked computers, but I always liked other things as well. I never thought that doing computer science would suit me because maybe it was a little bit too narrow. Mm. So I went for communication because I thought I could play with computers, but look at other things too, like, you know, literature and, um, you know, human communication, all of that. So when I saw this human-computer interaction thing, I was like, hmm, this sounds like what I should be doing. So I started signing up for all the different classes under that label. So we had um, usability, we had cognitive science, linguistics, uh, sociology, and of course, HCI and media design. And I really liked it. Mm. So in the end, very, very quickly, I basically left all the communication stuff behind and I was doing that. So when it came to deciding what my thesis would be about, I stuck with the HCI people there and I did my very first kind of experience on a European research project on museum technologies. Um, so then my qualification is communication, but my major is HCI. Mm. And you just finished another big project that yeah, was around museum yeah, technologies. Yeah, yeah. So Some 20 years yeah, later. Yeah. Actually, interestingly enough, um, the the person with whom I worked on the latest project is also the same person whom I worked on the very first project, Daniela. She was a researcher on the HIPS project, which was where I was doing my right. thesis on. I was a Just student researcher. I know, completely coincidentally. Yeah. It's actually a small world, isn't yeah. it, the academic world? <laughs> I was a student researcher on that, and she was a post, I think, postdoc or more experienced than me. Um, in another institution, but we were part of the same team and kind of always kept in touch. And then she moved to the UK and I moved to Ireland. And finally, we met again in Sheffield. And, and now just, you share an yeah, office. Yeah, now we share an office, yeah. Which, which you would never have imagined when you were never, working Never, in, never in a million years. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, it's interesting. I think that we often have stories like that where paths sort of cross and come back together and you never know. Yeah, yeah, in, in strange ways, yeah. yes. And the way you also have this sense of, you know, like you were doing communications, but yeah. then HCI started as this new thing and just went, yeah, there's something about that that you know, like. So that path of finding something that just connects, even when you don't mm. know exactly why it connects, there's, yeah, there's some well, sense. Yeah, well, in a way it suited me very well. It was quite eclectic. Mm. And also I could play with computers and, mm. <laughs> and other mm. things too, which was really attractive. Yeah. And I just like the general idea of, you know, technology not just for its own sake, with, you know, looking at what people do with it, what does it mean to them, how they communicate through it, which is still what I'm looking for, like now and, you know, the work that I do now. So, so yeah, I found a home in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So you did, what, how, how was the decision made about going from Italy to Ireland then? Because that's a big, yeah, shift. it was. So I should say that I, I knew from the very beginning, say when I started writing up my thesis and I knew that, you know, I would have to plan for what to do next, that I wanted to uh, move out of Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably didn't think it would be permanent back then. Uh, maybe just, you know, some months or a year. And I was started looking at, you know, options. Um, and it happened that at that time, Liam was on sabbatical in Siena, where I was a student. And he had an office in our lab and, you know, meeting people. Mm. And and then he was saying, oh, I have a project and I'm looking for people and I know you're finishing up. And if you're interested, maybe we can talk about what, you know, what kind of person I need. And so we did. And it sounded really interesting and it was like, well. I know nothing about Ireland, but it doesn't sound too bad. I think maybe I'll go. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> so really was general intention about going somewhere different. And the fact that conveniently I had one of the leading scientists in, in the field that I was interested yeah. in yep. um, being there. And, and kind of encouraging me to uh, to go to go to Limerick. So yeah. taking, taking advantage of opportunities that just yeah, um, come up. Yeah, no, I'm 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 lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm very I must say I've been very lucky mm. um throughout 
my career so far. So try not maybe say too loud or mm. maybe it will mm. change. But what, mm. what, so you have been very lucky, you say. Yeah. But what have been some of the challenges, though, in you know, moving from PhD to postdoc and now you're, now you're in a faculty position and recently been promoted as full yes, professor? Yes, yes, indeed. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. Um, I like work. <laughs> to an um, unhealthy degree. Um, so um, I suppose after PhD, I was already kind of doing loads of different things and I was being mentored um, by good people like yourself who, uh, since you were my uh, PhD examiner. And, yes, uh, oh, goodness, I uh, forgot, and actually. You were, uh, and you were so kind to give me advice on, you know, what to publish and how to move from there. And, of course, Liam and other members of the community. I always kind of had a sense of what the challenges would be, how to make the transition from being a student to mm. being a faculty member, a researcher, I had great opportunities. Um, I've always had the freedom to try my own strength in a way. Mm -hmm. I think I started submitting proposals even before I had the permanent position or a faculty position and uh, seeing what happened. Of course, the rules were a bit more lax, you know, in those yeah. days than they would be now. Now you probably wouldn't be allowed to submit a proposal in your own name unless you had the faculty job. Mm you would have someone to undersign it. Um, and that was, you know, I, I mean, I got loads of bad feedback, but at the same time, I started to learn what was needed and trying and kind of fine-tune things so that I could put myself forward for more. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I spent some years with very demanding lifestyle with, teaching, research commitments, um, being far away from my family. And those were tough, I suppose. Mm. Um, but if I look back, I'm not sure how I could have done them differently. Mm. I think... This was early, yeah, early uh, sort of faculty mm, positions. Yeah, days, early faculty positions. Post, yeah. And so the first couple of yeah. years when you... You're like, oh, okay, I'm on the faculty, but that means, you know, huge teaching load. Um, very little seniority to get help from, you know, mm -hmm. others. And that's just mm -hmm. in the nature what, of So academia. you just had to run with stuff. You're saying very <laughs> yeah. little, very few senior people around to help. Yeah, and I mean, that was not their fault. It's just the way yeah. um, sometimes you find um, academic departments to mm. be. Um, so it wasn't easy. I know that it's very common in academia. I guess... Um, first yeah. teaching's always really tough as very well. Very tough, Just yeah. The, the effort of establishing your classes and each lecture just takes yeah. so long. And I think even, to even when you do like teaching, it's also the effort of um, managing a group of students with everything that could happen to them as well as everything that can happen to you. People being laid with assignments because of, you know, personal issues and you become a little bit of a counsellor, a little bit of a supervisor, a little bit of a teacher. And that's a lot of work mm. and can be very rewarding, but maybe you don't expect it. So um, all of those roles, but without explicit training for any of them yeah, and all yeah. taking, requiring time. Yeah. Yeah, I I wish I had some training or maybe the chance of shadowing someone. That's an interesting idea. Uh, which would have helped. So when would you when if if you were able to mm -hmm. you know, wave your magic wand or an institute that's here or some or yeah. that back there, when would that shadowing take place? I think your first year as a new faculty member should mm -hmm. have some, maybe on some aspects of your role. Um, so it could be, you know, being a course leader or something like that. Uh, also because I got my first faculty job and automatically got inherited an entire degree program. That's <laughs> which I kind of helped set up. Yeah, it was. I helped set up. Um, I mean, it was probably a little bit insane of the university to actually let me do it. 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was good it in other ways. like it worked out. Yeah, it was fine in other ways, but um, be also because I enjoyed it, you mm. know, and, and there were some brilliant students and I mean, the course is still going, so. Uh, but obviously it would have been easier if I had someone else who I could shadow, I could get a sense of what, you know, the job requirements would be mm. and when things come at you. And then probably would have been a bit more relaxed or more able to handle the various different parts of that job. So um, was it more the unexpectedness of what was involved? Some things were definitely unexpected. So I knew I knew what to expect in some some respects. Just like teaching you know, that I have to teach. Teaching, but also, you know, documenting the course, going to faculty meetings, reporting on how the course goes, external examiners, all of mm. that, I knew. Mm. But things like, you know, how to handle the fact that maybe students might have some bad relationship with one of the lecturers and you become almost a mediator because you're in charge of the program. Um, so how do you handle that? And that happened a couple of times and I was quite surprised and a little bit scared by it. Um, so, for example, something like that. How did you handle um, that? Hmm? How did you handle that? Well, I kind of, um, I went to more experienced colleagues in a different department and uh, she had very good advice on um, how to handle that. Mm. So, for example, keeping everything, uh, a written record of everything, asking for, you know, mediation meetings with other people there too, like um, student advisors, head of department, so that advice was very helpful. But did but you have to play the mediator role? No, no, meeting? I could ask for, okay. for example, a student advisor to mediate. To play the mediator yeah. role. Sometimes mm. I had to, and then you just try to inject a little bit of common sense into you know, mm. everything. Sometimes mm. you have these difficult relationships that might mm. come from misunderstandings, and they sometimes escalate in ways that can be very upsetting for, mm. for the student and for the colleague as well. Mm. And all they need is just talk over it, be honest. Um, so just someone who's just calm and maybe a little bit outside of it to, to help with that. But yeah, I had no, you know, no idea that something mm. like that would happen. Um, yeah. And if you, if you were just going into a normal, I'm doing normal, but is there any such thing as normal? into a role where you were the new faculty member, new lecturer, and just given a couple of courses that you could run with, you wouldn't be in that position. It was because you were program director yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. you suddenly had all of this as yeah. well as all of that normal stuff that you'd have to do, just yeah, I learning that, how to yeah, fit I think, into that role. I think now it's all much more um, structured and there's more support mm. and there's more, I think, more awareness of... Um, how complex a role mm. like that is. Mm. Obviously, um, small universities sometimes, maybe they don't even think that might happen that often to warrant a structure in place for it. Uh, maybe bigger universities have mm. more experience mm. with it. I mean, I don't blame the universities, just how things mm. used to run, maybe. And maybe, and I, I was probably in an unusual position to just be fairly junior and, and, you know, in a position like that. Mm. Mm. So shadowing could have helped. Definitely. So working with someone else who was a program yeah. director and just shadowing. Yeah. yeah. Any other sort some, of things yeah, that would have Yeah, some training, helped? like something even, you know, mediation techniques. Yeah. I did take some training. I actually, when one of these situations came up, one of the first things I did is I went into HR and I said, is there any training I can take some of these things? So one that I did that was really excellent was uh, para-counseling. So it was the counseling unit and, and they were training academics with, to recognize situations where counseling might be needed. So obviously you can't be trained to be a counselor in, you know, a three session, three mm -hmm. days of your, no. of your time. But you can be trained to recognize the signs of a situation that might need counseling and how to deal with it in the interim and then how to gently encourage students to mm -hmm. go to counseling. 
And a lot of the situations are very common, you know, personal upsets that mean the student just can't do the work, mm. um, clashes with colleagues, with other students. I found that very, very helpful. It was really, really mm. great. And I did a couple of uh, sessions like that. I did another one on dignity and respect, on how to use respectful language, which was also incredibly helpful for things like meetings with upset people. Um, but I couldn't yeah. imagine you not using respectful language. So what yeah, what I, made you think that you needed, or not needed, but that this would be a helpful course? I think sometimes we don't realise how charged language can be yeah. in, to people in certain situations. And it's almost checking yourself, making sure you, you take a, a second to say, okay, I'm going to say something and I'm going to say it so that I'm not making this worse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that, you know, these people are not going to come out of this meeting room hating each other. Mm. Or, so uh, being aware yeah. that you have choices in how you say yes. stuff and that can influence. Yes. Even when your intentions are good, yeah. you can have unintended consequences Absolutely. from different choices. So it's almost a, it's almost a checklist. Yeah to make sure that you don't act on impulse yeah. because I think even with the best intentions, yep. it can be counterproductive. It's interesting, all these meta skills that, mm. that, that we need as academics. Yeah. You know, and, of course, there are the courses about how to write proposals and oh, all of yeah, that sort of thing. Those but, too, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. But it's these skills that are more of the day-to-day -day, yeah. um, interactions that we have that are And important. actually... Um, they are the kind of skills that I'm, I want to pick up even more of. And the most recent training I've done, and now that I'm a, a professor and I'm a, one of the university mentors, I'm, I really want to learn more about this. Mm -hmm. So I've done, just recently I've done some coaching techniques mm -hmm. um, and I'm kind of signing up for more. And I think the kind of the people skills are very, very important. Yep. And yeah, and I'm, you know, in a way, again, I'm, I believe in giving back. So if I can help a junior colleague who's on their, you know, um, trajectory to mm. become a senior academic, mm. maybe facing these things that I can help a little yeah. bit. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I enjoy it. Yeah. And I think it's great that you're continuing to go to these courses. I, I know that in some places that I've worked in the current place, there's often a complaint that they offer these sorts of courses, but people don't attend. Well, the last one I went to was very well attended on, on coaching and mentoring. Mm. Must have been almost 20 people there, great. men and women, which yeah. is great. Because obviously, um, women tend to apply to be mentored more. Um, and often ask for a, a female mentor. Mm. Um, someone who maybe has faced similar challenges mm. to them. Mm. But I think it's good to see both men and women yes. uh, keen to pick up some of these skills. It's very important yeah. because junior faculty struggles are for both yeah. young men, young women. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, what was the most interesting thing you learned or like most interesting skill or technique yeah. or useful skill or technique yeah, yeah, there that was, you might have um, learned there? I don't remember the exact name of the technique, but it's mm. basically almost like a table where – um, say there's an issue that your mentee is struggling with mm. and they're not quite sure how to act on it. So you basically take the issue and you almost break it down into components and you ask yourself, what will happen if I do this but not that? What will happen if I do both? What will happen if I do nothing? And what will happen if I do the second, not the first? Mm -hmm. And you create these scenarios together. And you have to make sure that you look at all these options. Mm. And that's just a way of, again, making you take a second to think over it. Yeah. Um, and it helps decision making. So it's not the point that you kind of tell, telling them, Oh, I think you should do this. Yeah. It's more about, again, helping them think, okay, so what are, what, what are the things that are worrying you yeah. about it? Yeah. And helping them, you know, make that decision, but not giving them direct input yeah. on it. I mean, I think that's great. And something that you said there, you know, not telling them, that, oh, I think you should, because 
I think that that's something that we often too easily fall in. You're talking about being aware of our language before, not realizing that you know, it's easy to fall into that language because we're experts, we've had the experiences and we think mm. we know what's needed. Yeah. And maybe it might be something that they could do and maybe should do, but just saying, oh, you should do this is a totally different thing than actually helping them. Yeah think through their own solution because they're the expert in their own lives. Yeah, I mean, I could say, you know, if, if sometimes you're asked the question, what would you do? Mm. And that's really, <laughs> that's a really terrible question to ask. You know, what I do, it doesn't necessarily mean anything, mm. you know. We're all in such different yeah. situations in yeah. life and at work. Yeah. So it's more about, again, you know, reflecting a little bit on... Mm. So what? if someone says to you, oh, what would you do? How do you answer then? I would say, well, maybe let's think a little bit of, of the options first, you know, and let's right. think so of what, yeah, to, I try and tone it down. I'm, I'm yeah. not, I don't like, I mean, I don't like people telling me what to do anyway. Yeah, Why actually, would others yeah. like to hear that from me, you know? Yeah. I think making your own mind is, mm. is the important thing. So to me, mentoring is just supporting someone. Mm make decisions, you know, that work for them with some awareness, with at least the thought that they've thought about it, that Mm. they've spent some time, you know, thinking of options and, you know. And that technique that you talked about Mm. before seems like a nice way to structure and scaffold that thinking process for them. I thought that was really simple and really effective. Mm. So, so you would know, you actually yeah. would you actually do that mapped out on a you piece do, of paper? Yeah, you do like um, like a square, and you put these oh, things okay. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's quite and it's the idea is to have like a shared yeah. sheet of paper where you, you can, can do it. And yeah, it. yeah. It's I thought it was very neat, yeah. very nice. Yeah. yeah, that sounds brilliant. Yeah. Um, so one of the reasons that I also wanted to speak from speak to you was mm. you, you've been doing some research on work-life balance, and yes. I, I was just curious to <laughs> to hear what you've been doing in yeah. that research and what you've been finding. And yeah, ba- balance is uh, is one of those words that I'm becoming a little bit I don't not allergic to, but is the is the sigh word you know when someone yeah. says something and you're like oh. oh no i actually don't like the term but it's no no what, but yeah. i know it's it's yeah. what we you know so um it all started from the work that i did on um mobile workers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i had a project looking at people who have to go from one place to another in order to do their job and it's something that i've been looking at now for quite a long time and doing the field work for this, um, it turned out that it was never just about dealing with work, but it was about dealing with their lives too. And the fact that they didn't have an office to go to where their family could find them. And this was even a time where there was no smartphones. It was the mobile phone was a very basic device. Um, no, you know, no data connectivity, mm. especially in a country like Ireland, with you know, parts of the country you might as well be on another planet, <laughs> <laughs> in a good sense and in a bad sense. Mm. So it was intriguing, you know, and how it all came in and how the fact that they had to break their work routine to move kind of meant that some of their personal matters also had to be almost chopped down into pieces that they could handle. What, what might be some of the job roles that you were looking um, at? Uh, so the first study that we did was sales representatives yeah. who used to um, go on to building sites um, and kind of selling, you know, joinery mm. parts and mm. stuff like that. And some were men, some were women, some were older, some younger, and traveling to rural Ireland doing this work was really interesting. And there was um, one of the participants um, who was being shadowed by one of my students. He uh, he fell ill with cancer during the project and he had to take time off and he was unwell. And, you know, so again, it was about him working and then going to doctor's appointments and, you know, then going back to work. In a way, we didn't, uh, we couldn't, filed the data about that because the project was not about that, it was about work. But um, the interesting thing is that 
he had a really nice relationship with the student and with us in the project, that when he was in hospital receiving treatment, uh, students used to go visit him and they'd have the, you know, these chats and talk about what was happening with the other reps and all of that. So then we would talk about it. And so I was like, wouldn't it be interesting to actually look at work and life? And then um, the follow-up project that came after that was about work and life. And that was about more kind of knowledge workers. Mm-hmm. So we looked at academics and there was the work of Fabiano, who's an um, ex-PhD student of mm-hmm. mine who you know because he yes. worked in Vienna for a while. Yeah. And we looked at um, creative entrepreneurs and we looked at IT managers. And that was a more rounded kind of a study of work, but not only. And I suppose it just snowballed, really. And now the most recent uh, project that I did with a colleague here, Hallam, is on um, the, the boundary or balance, whatever you want to call it. And the fact that balance is not really something that everybody aspires to. Mm-hmm. So we talked to about 25 people um, here in Sheffield in various different jobs, asking them, you know, how they separate working life, if at all, mm-hmm. or not. Yeah. And what is it, what kind of resources they use to do it or not do it. Um, so what do they use? What do they, what strategies they have for blurring? What strategies they have for separating? And it was really a fascinating piece of fieldwork. We're actually still writing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because it turns out that there's no, there's no strategy that fits everybody. Everybody has a wildly different way of, of mixing the two things. Um, and they are the result of very hard, almost articulation work in CSCW terms, very hard coordination of other people, of technologies, of institutions and organizations that they work in. And these are taking a long time to be in the form that they are. And when we were asking them, is there anything you would change about the way you do it? And we almost, I mean, the, almost the expectation was, oh, I wish, you know, I, you know, took up golf or, mm. you know. Yeah. And nobody said, oh, I need to change something. They all said, no, I'm really, really happy with the way I am handling this. And obviously, this was, this was completely different from one person. It was locking their laptop in the booth of the car in the evening. So that was so that what one person One did. person, so that they would not have yeah. any temptation yeah. about checking email when they went home. And for someone else, it was having continuous notifications of emails coming on their phone day and night. So they were happy with that. They would not change that. So that's a whole spectrum. That's what that's I'm saying. That's very extremes. Yeah. But... Yeah, so it it was quite mm. eye-opening. Mm. Yeah. What other sort of strategies did you see people so using? Uh, let me think some interesting ones. So, yeah, the laptop in the boot of the car was quite extreme. People um, having um, apps that give them warn, like reminders of um, ending a task or taking up a task. So time to go for your daily walk. So scheduling yeah, things scheduling that things. they wanted to fit yes. in. So that they know that they then... Yeah. Other strategies were about relying on a family member or a friend to be the person who, you know, makes you stop working. Others about, you know, colleagues with agreements of what kind of notifications to send you, when. So, so this is some of the organizational negotiations yes, that absolutely. you said they had to For do. example, there was one person it. who... He's a director for a company and he's international. He has an international role. So the company has branches in Asia, branches in the United States. And he knows that every evening he's going to get some notifications at home from the U.S. office. But he has a very good um, understanding with their colleagues in the U.S. office Mm. so that everything that he needs to look at straight away 
comes to him through phone and other ways, things like, you know, instant messaging on LinkedIn and things like that. Whereas stuff that he doesn't need to look at straight away is on his email inbox and he will check it when he's back in the office in Sheffield. So each of these were very unique arrangements. Mm. Um, but yeah, in a way, balance is not quite the right... That's why balance... Balance, balance and boundary. Is, yeah. His and his blurring, strategies. balance and boundary maybe are the three, yeah. the three things. Did yeah. anyone talk about balance? In balancey sort of terms, I think people. I think majority of people think they have some kind of balance, but it might not be the balance that your HR officer in charge of work-life balance would say is balance. Does mm. it make any sense? Yeah. 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 So what is balance for them is probably not balance for you or me. Mm. Yeah. So you, you did some the studies you did with Fabiano with. Um, looking at some of the academics yeah. as well. Yeah, we did. Were yeah. there particular differences between academics mm. as a profession mm. and some of the other professions that you looked at? Academics uh, seem to, they are a little bit special <laughs> because, <laughs> in a good way, because they have a lot of freedom at some mm. parts of the year, mm. at least. Mm. Um, they can work from home. Most cases, or at least the, the ones we were studying could. Um, so they were less bound to, you know, some of the workplace constraints mm. that some of the people working for companies had. Um, they also have very strong ambition and passion about what they do. Um, so they maybe distribute their work out in their week um, and day a bit more. But there were actually a lot of similarities with some other knowledge workers mm -hmm. um, who were not in academia. So not that special then. <laughs> a little bit special, little bit. but maybe not as unique, mm. you know, mm. or not as so very different. Mm. Did you also see a huge variety just amongst the academics or were there fairly similar sorts of patterns, challenges, strategies? I think they were a little bit more similar within the group. Mm. But I suppose also because it's more consistent, they were all in one university. So obviously the context of the study yeah. was just more, you know, comparable yeah. in a way. Yeah. Whereas in the other study, the, there's a greater range of professions. Mm. We have a couple of academics in the sample um, at, you know, different universities. But I guess... We were more interested in the personal strategy, how to make the decision that mm. things work the way they mm. do. So it wasn't so important to, yeah. yeah. So any other stories just around strategies and how they made mm. decisions or how they dealt with particular challenges? There was one um, one man who is um, close to, well, he's semi-retired mm. um, and he's a freelancer who told us that um, many years ago, when his children were still very young, um, he was still in his first marriage. He almost had this like revelation moment where he listened to this very sad song called uh, Cats in the Cradle. Oh, yes, the Cat Stevens yeah, song. Yeah, it's yes. uh, Harry Chapin, apparently. Yeah. I never I never heard this song before, oh, yeah. but he actually mentioned oh, it. Oh, Harry Chapin. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. And it's one of the saddest songs ever heard. And he was saying that he, he was working very hard, um, long hours. Um, he thought um, he was spending time with his kids. So again, you know, pretty happy. But then he, he heard this song. And in this song, is basically a son talking to his father and asking, can we do this together? And the father answering, oh, I'm busy now, you know, uh, maybe another time, another day. And at the end of the song, the father is now old and the son is all grown up. And the father asks him, oh, can we do this together? And the son says, sorry, dad, I'm busy now. And he recognized that he actually said that to his kids himself. Mm. That kind of telltale sentence almost, you know, no, I'm busy now. And that was the motivation for him to quit his job and, and become a freelancer, self-employed. 
And now, you know, I don't know how many years have passed, but I think at least 25, if, if not more. And he still remembers that, you know. And uh, he was saying, well, at least now I can spend time with my grandchildren and, yeah. uh, and I don't have, and, you know, I won't feel that guilty about, you know, saying, oh, when, when my son was young, my daughter was young, I said, sorry, you know, I'm too busy to play with you or do this and that. So that was a very, it was a very sweet story. And I mean, he was very uh, honest about it. Mm. And then he made me listen to the song, which was very, very it's sad. It is a sad song. <laughs> very. It's from my era. Um, uh, th- what was interesting there about that is his perception initially that he was doing okay and spending time mm, where yeah. we think we're doing okay. Yeah, but yeah. Because we do live in these social relationships as well, at checking in and seeing what other people think about what we're yes, doing. Yes, it might be. It might be one of the, you know, the major kind of findings out mm. of this study that people are reluctant to um, change because, again, it, it's a lot of work to change mm. those strategies. You have, you have to put so many other um, safeguards in place and deal with others and, you know, mechanisms of, you know, managing requests and notifications and all of that that it can be daunting and of course you're efficient when you have a system you're on top of things Mm. you obviously we also saw differences in depending on the type of job these people were doing um so the freelancers feel like they have to be available constantly and if they're not they're going to lose work so not as flexible as what yeah. they would have thought. As others, yeah. Mm. Whereas uh, others feel like, you know, well, if I don't do it, a colleague of mine will pick it up in another office and mm. and then, you know, I'll, I'll deal with it when I'm back. But I think maybe when not, another finding could be that maybe what we can do rather than giving them instruments for, um, you know, balancing is more giving them instruments to rearrange strategies mm. in slightly easier way. It's still work in progress, so I'm really kind of brainstorming yeah, here. Right. It'll yeah. be interesting to see what comes out. And this out is of not published those. yet, so oh. don't, <laughs> no, don't it's mention fine. It. Don't it's mention fine. It. It's fine. Um, everyone's got to forget what they've just heard. We we just presented <laughs> this at the workshop we had just Tuesday mm. on uh, so it's nomadic really hot culture. Off the press. So yeah, it's, it's so it's not secret well, it's, secret. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hot off the hot off the talk. Yeah, it's almost, not quite yeah. hot off the press. Uh, but you said before that you probably work more than is healthy for you, or you you like work oh. more than is healthy. What yeah. what about your own experiences around? Well, this? I think I think I've improved. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, is, that, is that a genuine improvement? So. Well, I don't know. The um, the fa- my partner is not an academic, and I think that's very very good for me <laughs> <laughs> because obviously it means that the weekends is time to do you know stuff that's not work. No matter how much I like to read this and do that, and yeah. Although he's very understanding and he knows that, you know, if there's an important deadline, that paper's got to go in, that proposal's got to go in, that, you know, but that I have to do it. And it's important to my to my job and to myself too. But I think I work less evenings and weekends than I used to maybe some years ago where I still had the contract position. And you're always, I think that's very probably a very common experience when you're a junior academic, almost needing to demonstrate your worth that you deserve a permanent post, tenure, whatever you want to call it in the various systems. And now maybe I'm a bit more confident that, you know, I'm, I'll be okay. They're mm-hmm. not going to, you know, they're not going to get rid of me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think you could have, in hindsight, because you talked about looking mm. back before and could you have done anything differently, do you think looking back that you could have also taken that attitude back then when, when you were on contract work or more junior or not? I, it, I honestly can't answer mm. because I think it would have been better in some ways um, for my own kind of happiness because mm. there were times where it was really hard 
Um, at the same time, all that I have done has been useful to me to do the work that I really love mm. and get a job that I really love. So in that pers- from that point of view, you know, I wouldn't change it. But, yeah. So I can't, I can't really say. Yeah. Yeah. Were there times when it did feel like it was just too much? Even I think it felt that it was too much of the things that I wasn't enjoying that much. Like what? Like, you know, course administration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anyone who enjoys that. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there should be a time limit, <laughs> if only to keep the quality of course administration good, because after a while everybody's mm. like, oh, God, mm. I hate this. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, that you know, something's got to give at that point that it was not sustainable mm. to for me to just keep doing it mm. in such, you know, begrudgingly. And it wasn't good for anyone, not for me, but not for others either. So what are your own strategies for managing, whether it's blurring, balancing or boundaries? Um, I don't know. We're, we're going deep into the <laughs> autoethnography thing now. Um, I suppose now if I'm tired, I stop working. Again, maybe it's a small luxury of being a senior academic. Yeah. If I'm really, if I'm tired, I usually stop. I usually stop. But that makes sense, though, as well. Yeah, just from I know. just from human being point of view, because we're <laughs> yeah. not all of the research says we're not very effective. No, but you know, sometimes you just push yourself. But now, you know, if I need sleep, I go and sleep. If I'm hungry, I eat. Mm. If I need just a break where I just go, you know, do shopping or go for a walk, I don't feel too guilty about going, you know, for an afternoon. Mm. I know, I mean, I know myself well enough to know that I will do it. And I think knowing yourself is also part of that, being confident about your strategy. And it takes time to know yourself as a professional, I think, mm. to know what you can achieve. And, you know, I think it's, it's a learning curve yeah. about not just about others. It's about how do you operate and yeah. how do you, you know, reach your goals in a way. And as you said it before about you know, the research, everyone's different. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Some people like, you know, I'm not a morning person. Mm. <laughs> so if I have to write the next great paper, in fact, probably never will happen, but I know it's not going to happen at you're not going to be up o'clock at 5 the, o'clock. No, no. I'm not yeah. even 8 o'clock in so the morning. <laughs> I was thinking 5 o'clock was early. No. 8 o'clock 8 early. o'clock's early. <laughs> so I usually leave my, you know, uh, menial tasks for the morning mm. because I'm not going to be able to write anything smart until about <laughs> lunchtime. <laughs> but I know, I know, I know yeah. it now yep. because I have been in front of the screen at 6 a.m. with a cup of coffee and, you know, ready to go and it's just... And a blank terrible. page, still yeah, staring terrible. at you two hours later. So it's not going to happen. And yeah. I know it now. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. and many things like that. Yeah. Many little things like that. Yeah. So it is being more reflective about your own uh, yeah. patterns and, I mean, and practices. We are creative workers, aren't we? We always mm. have to come up with the next idea, mm. if only on how to make your paper convincing enough to get it ac- or accepted. How to, how to, yeah. how to communicate to the students yeah exactly that's also Um, creative so i think creative work sometimes you know you can't really have set rules Mm. for it Mm. everybody um has a different way of of kind of encouraging that creativity so Mm. i know that mine is not a morning thing Mm. (laughs) it usually (laughs) appears (laughs) later in the day (laughs) yes fleetingly yeah fleetingly (laughs) obviously and you have to grab it when it does yeah so do you build in do you structure in time in your diary for times that you know you're going to be more productive and say no meetings this is writing if i have if i have a deadline coming up yes i do if I don't have a deadline, no, I'm more flexible. So mm. a, a regular day at the office, you know, besides meetings, usually, you know, I know that the morning is four. I usually tend to schedule meetings morning yeah. um, so that then the afternoon I can pick up the paper or I can pick up proposal or just read things. Um, and I guess I'm lucky now because I have a mainly research position. So... Um, so it's good in ways, bad in other ways, but good in the sense that um, I don't have a cl- strict class timetable that affects my week. Mm. So 
Um, usually it's concentrated on a couple of days and then rest of the week is more flexible. The downside is that you don't have the kind of um, creative response from the students mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you like you that. that? I do, yeah, yeah I do. Um, but I have my PhD students and it's mm. always really, really great to talk mm. to them and mm. get their ideas. Yeah. 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 You're also really active on social media. Yeah. Um, how do you find the time? Well, Tell us about to me, Why and how? It's, it's a little bit like a um, note-taking device mm. for myself. I know it's a, it's a little bit um, oversharing at times, but people can just unfollow. I don't <laughs> mind. I won't be offended. Um, I use it a lot as uh, like, tw- first, especially Twitter, I find it more useful for myself than for people who follow me. Mm-hmm. It's just, um, you know, things I'm reading that I find interesting, just kind of almost bookmark them. And also I like the kind of interaction with others. It's a nice break um, during the day. You know, I can't concentrate for more than maybe an hour. Mm-hmm. Then I need a little break and I'll just look at Facebook and, you know, and there's usually a lot, lots of colleagues are there. And it's interesting because, uh, in a way, it's it's nice. You have that kind of a supportive year. Lots of people are in the same situation. When it's close to EU proposal deadline, everybody's <laughs> in the same boat. You know, panicking on Facebook. It's and, a bit of mutual panic. It's almost feel like you know there's a squad out there mm. to uh, to help. Also, mm. because I don't want mm-hmm. to uh, go to my partner too much and say, yeah. "Oh my God, we're gonna do." Yeah. yeah. So I think it's it's. Um, you know, it can be light relief like that. Yeah. And for, you know, more kind of professional things, it looks like I'm really active, but I use a lot of like scheduled posts, things Do like you? that. Yeah. So what for, you, you might sit there in a little batch and say, I'm, yeah, I want to put out these posts for, today. For ECSCW, I only gave it a couple of hours a week, you know. That still sounds a lot to me. But for close to the conference, it was it was almost kind of scheduled for my work on the conference. Oh, okay. So this is not just yeah. social media work. It's no, 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 all, no. All so I do all things to do with ECSCW. So I schedule Facebook posts, you know, things to for the blog, you know, that will appear. And so it's not as time consuming or as distracting as it looks from the point of view of the audience. Mm. Yeah. Because I'm not a great social media person, and it, and I I haven't ever played with scheduling, and it sounds mm. like that that is a way of using it more strategically. Well, I found also it's in that case it was just easier than me trying to find the time another day where I had a ton of meetings or something like that. So, and I mean I like taking photographs, and that's something that I just like. So if I'm somewhere nice, I'll post those. Just because I like photographs. There's no other reason for that. It's just fun. Yeah. Cats, obviously. That kind of thing. <laughs> I was saying to myself, will we get to the end without cats? Oh, no. <laughs> it's impossible to get to the end without cats. There's got to be cats. There has got to be cats. So, yeah, that box is ticked. <laughs> and are they your... Uh, um, light relief when you go home <laughs> or, or you... uh, yeah it is but also I think it's more like the comedy value of it you know because I think there was uh, this at the keynote today uh, what um, Ayman Shama was talking about you know uh, the, uh, so much of the images on Flickr and Instagram that the AI was monitoring and most of it was cats or something close to them so it's it's it many has photos that, yeah. which you've contributed i think it's just funny that yeah. you know the internet is so obsessed with cats and myself being a great lover of every, anything to do with popular culture mm. memes that kind mm. of stuff um i find it really funny mm. so yeah mm. yeah and what what are your other strategies for other stuff than work um as i said um, other stuff usually is down to my partner and mm. when he's free and, you know, at least one day of the weekend is completely work-free. As a, as a deliberate strategy? Yeah. No matter, even if you've got those deadlines. Yeah, out. also because I find as I get older that I cannot sustain working without at least one 
full That's day good off. Good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I just get too tired. Yeah. 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 And obviously, and kind of the longer time frame, making sure I go visit my mom on a regular mm. basis, meaning, you know, being out of the office for a while and, you know, not working too much when I'm there. If I can take off time, even better. Mm. Um, and I suppose that the, yeah, maybe the downside is that I don't have any kind of scheduled hobbies. Right. Um, so things that I go and do every at that Tuesday time, every Tuesday night, yeah. exactly, yeah. But, you know, I do other things. I I really like reading stuff that is not academic, um, yeah, taking pictures, mm. you know, so yeah. usually trying to find time for that. And I don't work in the evenings um, anymore unless there is, again, like a major proposal that's due, you know, in two days' time and I really need to finish mm. something. Is that also turning off notifications and things or just not I deliberately don't have, working? I don't have um, email notifications ever. Mm. The only uh, notifications that I get is when I'm in the office and I have my Outlook email open. Mm. Otherwise, I only check email when I want to. So I don't have those. And I don't have any social media notifications right. on my phone. Again, I only get it when I actively go. Right. Yeah. yeah. I made nice. an exception this week because I knew that people would be looking for me. Yeah. But yeah, normally yeah. I turn them all no. off. Yeah. Good. Mm. So are there any final thoughts or any things that we haven't talked about? Oh, that God. Yet? I don't know. Not that um, I gave you much warning for this. No, 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 it's fine. About it's fine. I don't know. I think maybe one thing that it's, it, it's probably a common experience with academics because we move so much is having part of your family in a different country. And <laughs> at the moment, we are like in between three, Ireland, Italy, the UK. We're in the UK and... My partner's family is in Ireland and I have friends in Ireland who are like family to me and my mom is in Italy and so that's always complicated. And as, as I said, it's probably quite common to a lot of, um, yeah. lot of us. Um, I mean, you, you know it perfectly yeah. well. Yeah, we're yourself. in a similar situation. Yes. Um, and it's in a way our job gives us allowances to, work in places that are not your, you know, your corner of an office somewhere. But it can be also um an issue, you know, as as time goes and So what are the what are the implications or consequences of that for you? I guess I made a choice. I made the choice of staying in Europe, for example. Um although, you know, my heart says, oh wouldn't it be great to go to, you know, Australia or Canada or, you know, um, but, well, you know, knowing like, I, I don't think I could live with myself with the thought of being so far away. Um, so you, you know, but again, it was a conscious choice. So that I know maybe sometimes I'm like, oh, there's such a great job going on in this really far away place. But no, not for me, because I don't think I'd be happy about being being there then when I get there. And then, I mean, for me, it, it's easier in a way. I, I don't have any kids. So that, um, you know, it simplifies life. So, you know, grandparents to see and schools to attend, mm. things like that. Yeah. So for those of us who are in a similar situation and have children, it's incredibly complex. And, of course, I don't have any advice on the matter, but I guess... I, I have felt the tension about, you know, being far away, or even if relatively. <laughs> so, Because um, it's still a experience. few hours flight. It's, it is, it's not it is, is. And again, it requires arrangements, you know, um, about being not being there and, yeah. So I don't know how. It's actually probably something that each of us deals with in a different way. I'm not sure if there's a, a common strategy for it. Although it's a very common situation, or at least if I think of kind of the immediate, you know, community of colleagues um, that I kind of work with, it's, you know, it's quite common. Um, so I'm sure that they must have 
all must have gone through some questions about that. You know? But do you feel like you've got roots put down here where you're living now, or are the roots sort of a bit distributed? I think they're distributed because because people are in different places, and it's always difficult to think of the very long term, if you know what I mean. Um, of course, things might change. Um, but I always think like I will always have to go spend some time there and I'll always have to go and spend some time here. <laughs> so in a way, it's, it's just accepting that you are at home in, in more than one place, yes. really. Yeah. Yeah. We often say, you know, when we talk about home, we often go, well, what do we mean by home right now? And yeah, yeah. Home, home is, I don't know, is, is it where you came is a from? Network, is it where you're maybe. living now? Yeah, is maybe it, it's a composite Where thing. your house is or... Yeah, it's a mix. So, but it is, it's interesting, it is part of the trade-offs of having the, the, you know, the great flexibility in this job to take mm -hmm. up opportunities all around the world. Yeah, yeah. And the consequences of it. Yeah. So we should probably wrap yeah, okay. up and let you go and recover from yeah, your yeah. But this was really great. successful it. week. Yeah. So thank you for your service to the community and for organising ah, the conference. My it's absolute just pleasure. Brilliant to have people like you who, are, who do this work with such sort of enthusiasm and uh, yeah. And it was evident throughout the week. So yeah, I thought it was a great week. Yeah, I enjoyed was, myself. It was. So thanks, Louis. You're very welcome. Okay. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.